Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast. Chapter 13.3. I think we finished chapter 13, did we? I think we did. Pretty sure we finished it. Yeah, we did. Um, Swim says, Mummy says, it seems that George was a disagreeable house guest this time around. Um, then that was our whole extent of the conversation. I felt, and I don't know, maybe I was just paying attention more or differently, but I felt a real shift in the tone of the writing at this point. It became a little more poetic, a little more descriptive, a little more visceral, visual, I should say. Um, Not to say it was much better, but that was just something I noticed. Um, And uh, interesting to find out if... If that was just me, or if that was a real thing. Now, let us just dive in to... What are we up to? Um, chapter 14. Um, medium length chapter. The best friends a man ever had, yet they had been blown away like thistle down, and leaning back in my seat I began to rejoice that... The Irish Literary Theatre was going over to Dublin with three plays. The Bending of the Bow, my rewritten version of Edward's play, The Tale of a Town, Edward's own beautiful play, Meave, and a small play, The Last Feast of the Fianna, by Miss Milgan. And that Edward, who had cast himself again for Baggage Man, was going to take the company over. Uh... We were to follow him, Lady Gregory Yeats and myself, a day later, and our happy travelling is remembered by me, even to the hop... Sorry, one moment. Sorry, just plugging my phone in. Um, even uh, to something hop... into uh, Even to the hop into the carriage after them and the pleasure I took in their soft western accent. Our project drew us together and we were delightfully intimate that morning and I can recall my elation while watching Yeats reading the paper <laughs> Excuse me. I had written on the literary necessity of small languages. It was to be read by me at a lunch that the Irish Literary Society was giving in our honour and in it some ideas especially dear to Yeats <clears throat> had been evolved. That language, after a time, like a coin, too long current, the English language had become defaced. And to write in English was, it was necessary to return to the dialects. English rises like a spring among the mountains. It increases into a rivulet. Then it becomes a river. The water is still unpolluted. But when the river has passed through a town, that water must be filtered. And Milton was mentioned as the first filter, the first stylist. Never did I hear a deep, as de- so deep a note of earnestness in Yeats's voice as when he begged of me not to go back upon these opinions. They were his deepest nature. But in me they were merely intellectual, invented so that the Gaelic League should be able to justify its existence with a reasonable literary argument. Lady Gregory sat in the corner, a little sore, I think, think, feeling, and not unnaturally, that this fine defence of the revival of the Irish language 
should come from her poet, instead of coming as it did from me. In this she was right, but an apology for the prominent part I was taking in this literary and national adventure would make matters worse. The most I could do to make my intrusion acceptable to her was to welcome all Yeats's emendations of my text with enthusiasm. There were passages in this lecture intended to capture the popular ear, and they succeeded in doing this in spite of the noise of coffee cups as soon as the orator rises the waiters become unnaturally interested in their work. But I can shout, and when I had shouted above the rattle that I had arranged to disinherit my nephews if they did not learn Irish from the nurse that had been brought from Iran, everybody was delighted. The phrase that Ireland need was not a Catholic but a Gaelic university brought a cloud into the face of the priest. Edward agreed with me, adding, however, that Gaelic and Catholicism went hand in hand, a remark which I did not understand at the time, but I learned to appreciate it afterwards. There were some cynics present, Gaelic leaguers, who, will approving, no, who, while approving, held doubts, asking each other in my sincerity were, if my sincerity were more than skin deep, and it was whispered at Edward's table that I had come over to write about the country and its ideas, and would make fun of them all when it suited my purpose to do so. It would take years for me to obtain forgiveness for a certain book of mine, Edward said, and reminded me that Irish memories are long, but in time, in time. When I am a grey-headed old man, I answered, and I went back to England. Irish speakers are dying daily, or going to America, and the League will not avail itself of my services. The folly of it, the folly of it. I muttered over my fire for the next three months until one morning a telegram was handed to me. It was from the League's secretary. Your presence is requested at a meeting to be held in the rotunda to protest against. What the League would protest against on that occasion has been forgotten, but my emotion on reading that telegram will never be forgotten. Ireland had not kept me out of it out in the cold, looking over the half-door for years, as Edward had anticipated, only three months. The telegram must be understood to mean complete forgiveness, but they will want a speech from me, and I am the only living Irishman that cannot speak for ten minutes. A speech of ten minutes means two thousand words, and every morning I fail to dictate two thousand words. My dictations are only so much rigmarole mere incentives to work and have to be all rewritten. On the edge of a platform one cannot say, forget what I have said, I'll begin again. One cannot transpose a paragraph or revise a sentence. I can't go. I can't go, and my feet move towards the writing table. But it was as difficult for me to write no as it was to write yes, the only Irishman living who cannot make a speech the only one that ever lived, I added, and sank into an armchair, awakened from a painful lethargy by the sudden thought that perhaps the secretary of the Gaelic League might be persuaded to allow me to read a paper at the meeting. I could do that, but time was lacking to write the paper, midday, and the train left Euston for, at 8.45. Evelyn Innes would have to be abandoned. The secretary would have given longer notice. A man of letters cannot uproot himself at a moment's notice. Leave Owen Asher in the middle of Evelyn's bed to write an argument on the literary necessity of small languages. Impossible.
All the same, I could not spend the evening in Victoria Street while my kinsmen were engaged in protesting against the language of the Saxon. A worn-out, defaced coin, and I sought for an old English, for an old shilling, in my pocket. And finding one of George the Third, and looking at the blunted image, I said, "That is the English language, a language of commerce. But the Irish language is what the Italian language was when Dante decided to abandon the Latin." I thought of the train rattling through the shires through Rugby, Crew, and Chester. I saw it in my thoughts circling through Aber, where Stella was painting flocks of herds, Bangor. It is but a few miles further on, and the simplest plan would be to meet her on board the boat. Let Stella be the die that shall decide whether I go or stay. An act relieves the mind from the strain of thinking. And I believed everything to be settled until her telegram arrived, saying she would not saying she would meet me on board the boat, and my indecisions continued until evening, expressing themselves in five telegrams. Five telegrams, she said, when I came up the gangway, two asking me to come, two telling me not to come, and the last one reaching me only in time. You have a servant to pack your things, but in lodgings... Stella, dear, I know, but the fault isn't mine. I came into the world unable to decide whether I should catch the train or remain at home. But don't think my many changes of mind came from selfishness. Agonies were endured while walking up and down Victoria Street between my flat and the post office. The sending of each telegram seemed to settle the matter, but halfway down the street I would stop, asking myself if I should go or stay and all the time knowing, I suppose, in some sort of unconscious way that my love of you would not allow me to miss the pleasure of finding you, a lonely dark figure, leaning over the bulwarks. How good of you to come. Yes, it was good of me, for really, five telegrams, what would you like to see them? No, no, throw them away. She crushed the telegrams in her hand and dropped them into the sea. Litterbug. You were vexed and perplexed, but I suffered agonies. Again, about some things I am willless, and for half my life I believed myself to be the most weak-minded person in the world. But you are not weak-minded. I never knew any one more determined about some things you are writing. Aren't you as determined about your painting? You have sent me out of your studio, preferring you, your painting to me, but we haven't met under that moon to wrangle. Here you are, and here I am, and we going to Ireland together. Alright, I'm going to pause there because uh, I'm bored <laughs> um, and tired. So let us put a pin in it and have a sleep. I hope you're having a good Easter uh, break or Easter celebration if you do that kind of thing um happy easter happy good friday is what it is actually here in uh, australia i think that'll be good friday for you by the time you listen to this so uh thanks for listening see you tomorrow